Our scripture is uh, Ephesians 5, and this is what we're building on. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Hebrews 13.5, and it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content. And that was it, those two words, be content with what you have. And he said, For I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the idea, we talked about this last time, about how uh, the number one thing in, in life is about contentment. But here's the point. Our heart disposition is responsive. So you're, you will respond to situations, but it always reveals what's hidden in your heart. Remember we talked about this last week. We said we're telling on ourselves. So we can make all the justifications we want. We can name all the degrees we have. We can talk about all the Bible studies, what, what you know, conferences we've gone to. It doesn't matter. How you respond to conflict really tells on the depth and level of your spiritual trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It's shaped and conditioned by the Spirit of God in our humble submission to biblical truth. Now, that's not like a no-brainer in this church. If I went up the street and told any of the other churches, they'd be devastated because they don't really have a biblical worldview. For children of God, our number one temptation is discontentment. Discontentment. So take a look what Mark Dever said about this. He said, it's a desire for something better than the present situation. Now, it's not, sometimes it's not verbalized. It's just a, a, a grumbling or, or a, disapp- a deep disappointment. Some people even respond in depression. It's, it's, a, it's a desire, and that's an emotion of the heart. Again, it doesn't have content or substance on it. It's an attitude of the heart. Um, now, on the other hand, it's inevitable that people in the sinful world would be discontent. It's kind of the DNA of the flesh. The DNA of the flesh is, is discontentment. I want more, I want more, I want more. Uh, the flesh is never satisfied. It always wants its way. And so when we become in the flesh or we become carnal, well, this is some of the things that we have to face. Now, I realize that is part of the DNA of the flesh, but we have the new birth in us, a new spirit. So again, we're not have to be subject to that, but that is available if we want it. This world's broken by sin and should be better. On the other hand, it's also inevitable that sinful people like us will often put our hope in circumstances rather than in God. That would be a thesis statement. That would be something we could take home. That would be something you say. So every time I'm facing something, I could say to myself, am I putting my hope in the outcome of that circumstance or am I putting my hope in God? I mean, how am I going to face this? Some of it's facing unemployment. Some of it's facing serious health issues, losing parents that you've loved and trusted all your life. There's just things that you have to face with God because he's not going to let you kind of run around on a random way. We'll talk more about that. Look at the um, Thomas Watson, the famous Puritan. He says this way, God is infinite in wisdom and cannot make mistakes. Every time I sit down with someone and they're trying to tell me why God is not being fair about something, I said, well, the first thing, let's build, a, let's build a, a, a platform to discuss this. The first thing is God cannot make mistakes. He cannot make a mistake. There's no error and there's no sin and everything he does is good. Now, we have to set that. That's just set aside. That's the way it is. That's just what it is. One man desires health and sees sickness is, and God sees sickness is better for him. Another man Desires liberty, and God sees restraint better for him. He works out his liberty while his feet are bound. And what happens? And his heart shall grow even more. 
grace. It's about God's grace. It's what God is doing. Shall we be discontent at the which at which is enacted by a decree and ordered by a providence? Am I going to be a devoted child or a rebel? This is Thomas Watson wrote this years ago. When they were really down into the heart of issues here, that um, was so so important. And so I can tell you this, that we're going to take a gander into some of these things. This is kind of a way of, of summarizing what we did. So look at the Easton Bible Dictionary. And I want to say about Easton Bible here in 1893, again, a little way of review. It's old school. These guys were, I mean, this is 130 years ago. 130 years ago they wrote this. And Easton really had it down right. Uh, we don't have, we sort of have a, a intellectual higher view of Christianity today. We articulate in lots of different terms. They're very clear about straightforward, this is what it is. We kind of call it what God calls it to get what God gives it in their mind. He said, contentment is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, to his or her lot, whatever it may be. What is a lot? What does he mean, confined to his lot? I'm sorry? What you've been given. What you've been given. Yeah, yeah. You're not not addressing issues that what I've been given, what you've been given is what you address. He says, yeah, that's what it is. And so he goes through this breakdown here. He talks about, first of all, he talks about what contentment is opposed to. Once you, I'm shaping this so, so you have something to build on where we get to this thing. Hopefully it's going to help you in the end. That's what we're talking about. Now, you could either stay in this class and be subject to this, you know, talking about contentment in a very hard issue, or you can go to Koinia class over there and be entertained, if you want. It's... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to make a point for Michael, you know, because it's standing room only over there. Okay, here we go. He says, contentment is opposed to evil, uh, envy. Our vice is, a, is obsession to um, wealth, ambition, which is more worldly ambition or things than wealth in this world. It's opposed to ambition. It's also opposed to repining, that is fretting or expressing discontent. Those things in parentheses I added for clarity, repining to fret or, or express discontent. Contentment is opposed to all these things that are that are also in, absolutely in opposition to where we're supposed to be all the time. And we, we can say, we can probably go around the room and figure out times where you were repining or you were, or you were fretting and stuff, and, and you could figure it out. But look what contentment is actually for. It says it arises... From an inward disposition. Inward disposition. So how would you define a disposition? Anybody? Bent. Bent. Huh? A bent. Okay. Bent towards something. Good. Anybody else? Good. I mean, this is this is where the bigger sin is. I mean, if you're caught with you know, worldly paraphernalia, worldly stuff, worldly program on your TV, a worldly uh, music, worldly anything. It's not as bad as your attitude towards that. Okay? Uh, fundamentalism gave us a whole bunch of external things to be concerned about. 
Um, and so I understand that, but I would say the greater issue is our attitude towards something. What do we think about that? Why are we finding pleasure? And I want to know about the attitude. That's how I can help people. And so I say dispositions of persons inerrant qualities of mind and character. Mind and character. I've, when um, Mark and Brent were younger, they were just getting their driver's license, and it was a painful process because it's so expensive uh, for insurance. And I called the lady and said, i got to add these kids. i got a couple kids putting on here. And they said, well, did it have... Uh, their, you know, great reports, you know, their, their uh, transcripts. Yeah, so I sent them. She goes, oh, they're A students. That's wonderful. I said, well, I'm not worried about their aptitude. I'm worried about their attitude. And she said, can you explain that? And I had a chance to talk to her about driving 2,000, 3,000-pound cars uh, with a bad attitude. doesn't matter how smart you are. And she's like, wow, that's different. You know, you can't, a report card doesn't ever tell that part of that system. Attitude and disposition are, are critically important. And so he says this, he says, so the offspring of contentment is humility and of intelligent consideration and of the rectitude, which is the correct moral behavior and thinking in that process, and the benignity, which is the act of kindness, benignity. And then it says, here's things, four things I highlight. I just put these red things on here. Um, divine providence the greatness of divine um, of divine providence, which is the act of or divine providence and then divine promises. And then I put on here our own unworthiness, is what Easton said, which is a selflessness. We'll talk more about that. As well as some view of the gospel opens up for us in rest and peace hereafter. Interesting enough, the gospel gives us the peace of God without glorifying, without being glorified. Something, and it is true. So we go through our whole Christian life miserable. And that's what they always talk about, miserable Christians. How miserable Christians are having to obey God, you know, and being confined. But having the peace of God is that supernatural promise of God while we're still here. It's important. So I, I categorize these together by saying, if you want contentment, they should line up with these four things. These four important things in life. Now, the problem uh, is not the problem. So we, we talked about that before. The problem is not the problem. The problem is how we respond to the problem. That's the problem. So I'm going to show you that in a minute here, why that is so critical. But contentment is produced through the relationship of these four pillars, divine providence. How would you simply define God's providence, divine providence? Anybody? Okay, so it's God enacting that. Good. Good. Anybody else? Divine providence. Some of the old, some of the old churches would say that providence was the sovereignty of God looked at in reverse, You're looking back on the providence of God, the sovereign work He did, what He's doing. Okay. So it's God's. Sovereignty. So going through it and then looking back, yeah. where Joseph said, "What they meant for evil, God meant for good." Looking back, exactly. right? He was captured, thrown in a hole. God's plan had nothing to do with free willism, right? So the other thing I want you to remember about divine providence is this, and it's it's critical because 
it, it, um, it, life is not as random as you like to make it. Life is not as random. He doesn't rob you of free will to sin. You still have free will to sin. Okay? But to follow the Lord and to see what he's doing in front of you, his, you he's marking your path. You know, he's the one that's taking your turning, but he's, he's marking out your path, Scripture says. And it's very clear that, first of all, that divine providence is, is the only way I could have peace. As a Nazarene, I had no peace of God, ever. I'm always trying to work my way to heaven. I'm always trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be more spiritual. I'm trying to do more spiritual. And I never could rest in the fact that I just need to obey what's right there in front of me and accept whatever God is putting around me. I say, oh, Lord must be doing something here. And you apply for a job or you apply for a ministry or you try to, and the door is shut. You're like, oh, Lord didn't see that was good for me. And then I go over here. Oops, the Lord didn't see that was good for me. Hey, would you mind doing this or that? They said to me, at the, you know, I'm doing very well in the, as a pastor. I thought I was. And then they said, you want to come to the seminary and teach for half the price and you have to, and you have to pay your own rent for a change. And I, did, I'm just, I had to see where God is working around me. And which really was helpful. Providence is huge. And if you don't connect the dots between providence and your contentment, you're missing something because you're thinking that this is random and happened to you. And God is trying to do something around you. The second one is divine promises. Why? What would you call divine promises? It's a trusted word, but what, how would you articulate that in your own definition? I mean, they're promises to everybody, but why, are the, why is divine promises so important to grab on to? God's obligated himself to fulfill those promises. Yeah. He's on his own. He's, he stands behind those promises. His yep. credibility is on the line. Amen. Truth is what God intended by what he said. In other words, he gives us the truth of his word. It's interesting. He has to defend it. It's a promise that he said won't fail. My word never returns void. He's always using the word of God to do the work of God in the child of God. And so you have to understand that divine, that divine promises, what we, we can see that and touch that and, and note it. We have to experience what's ahead of us for providence. But, but divine promises are things we can hang on to when we're absent of anything else. It has everything to do with contentment, everything. And then divine holiness of God. And I put that on there as the other one when he talked about our unworthiness. Uh, our revealed sinfulness is, comes out of understanding God's divine holiness. So when you make decisions as a Christian, it should be in light of the holiness of God because then you'll see yourself in clear perspective of somebody who doesn't have anything but Jesus Christ. Everything you are, Everything that you represent, all your identity, is in the holiness of God himself, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it should humble you. That's where the humility starts coming. You don't try to be humble. You are humbled by the understanding the holiness of God. Most people, want, most people even want the gospel. They want to be saved. They want to be right with God. But they really don't have the right view of the holiness of God as well. And then the last one is divine salvation of God which is our undeserving life. You see how you see each one of these things, his decreed work, trusted word, revealed sinfulness in our own life, and then uh, our undeserving life that Christ died while we're still enemies of him. He didn't just pick good people. 
He didn't, he didn't find a dirty pearl and then polish it. That's what the Nazarenes used to say. That's all he just found, a dirty pearl, and he just cleaned it up, and that's you. Because you're the pearl of his, you're the apple of his eye. No, we were turds when he found us. We are nobody. He made something out of nothing in our own life. Divine salvation. And so the big idea is really the problem is not the problem. The problem is responding to the problem. I hope I made that clear. It's really important because you won't get the most out of Christianity if you don't understand this. This is the secret passive sort of sanctification killers that we, oh, we're doing all these things, God, when I checked all the boxes, I did this, 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 and why didn't you give me this? You're not, you're not connecting. You're not connecting well. Here's some examples. I want to help. I want to list you to help me. Somebody look up Genesis 21 through 16. Just raise your hand if you have a, okay, Mark, make sure you read that aloud. Genesis 20, 1 through 16. Good. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I had done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore... I, do not, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men <clears throat> were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done these things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no God, there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say to me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell here as it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I I have given you... I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your inheritance in the eyes of all who are with you before everyone you are vindicated. So that's a lot. That's a long passage. Um, The other ones are not as long, but Abraham, when he first arrived to the, to the king, Abimelech, he, he, there was, there was a perception in his own mind that he was responding to. So what was the actual problem that he faced? What was the problem that he faced before he lied and said Sarah was his sister? 
What was it? Fear of death. Fear of death. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, oh, man, this is going to turn out bad. And all of God's promises are going to, oh, it's not going to work. And I got to fix this for God. I got to fix this for God. He, he, he messed up. I mean, here I am. And this king, is he, he's looking at my wife. And, oh, my, what am I going to do? And so I got to lie in order to protect everything because I got to make it better than what God has actually placed him in this position to do. The perception of this thing, his fears, his own problems was his biggest problem. Okay, but where did God interfere? Where did God come in and, 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 and jump in on this whole process was to was actually to go and address the issue. And actually, he addressed this line. He talked to the king. He said, look, this, I'll destroy you. And this is what's going to happen if you touch her. And so then he comes back and says, well, why did you lie? And then it all started. But all the complex issues happened on after his sinful response. Try to remember this. This is always very important. There's, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of these situations in the Old and New Testament. It's just one of them. I'm picked Abraham because he's a pretty good guy. All right? You can pick Noah. You can look at all the places that they, they ran into situations or something happened or there was an environmental a situation happened, a circumstance and they overreacted or didn't respond to properly. God chose, you saw all the work that God was doing on the response, not on the initial problem. The initial problem was his pure perception that there may be a problem. Don't you think the Lord would have changed his mind if he would have told him the truth? Don't you know that God would have stepped in? If something He would have done something because we would trust that. Well, if he didn't, then God's part of the plan is for her to go off with the king and God will redeem this. No, no. That's not how it happened. Go to King David on 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. Now, everybody knows this, King David and Bathsheba. So, somebody read us 1 through 6 or so. 2 Samuel. And it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. And David stayed at Jerusalem. And when evening had came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said... Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Yep, that's good. Now, we know the story of Bathsheba. Okay? Now, what was the what was the thing, what was the problem that King David faced initially when he was on the roof? What was it? He shouldn't have been there, or he should have been able to control what he was seeing, right? He's looking at that, saying, that's not my wife. That's, this wouldn't please the Lord. I mean, the biggest problem he had was came from on the inside of him. He was faced with a situation. What's a situation? A temptation. What was a temptation? His response to it was the real problem. Notice that every pain and agony in King David's life, all the way into his death, 
and the loss of his own children and everything that happened was a, a, a rippling effect of his bad choices. Our biggest problem isn't what we're faced in temptation. Our biggest problem is how we respond to the trials that we face. <laughs> Plain and simple. Plain and simple. They're all over the place. They've always been there, but they've sort of a subtle, it's not a, it's not a strong in-your-face doctrine. It's an actual uh, subtle thing that really is driving what people actually believe. And God put them all in here. Let's just cut it to the couple of them here. Let's go to um, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We knew I got Peter in the garden. He was going to fix the problem with the sword. The Lord put the ear back on the servant. And then everything, he says, we will live by the sword, we'll die by the sword. This, that's an easy one. How about the parable of the unforgiving servant? Matthew 18. 23 through 35. Somebody read. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred dinarai. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, no, that's it. So again, what, what was he facing? What, what was the servant looking at at this moment? He's in court. The master took him to court. He's going he's gonna to take him. He's going he's, he, he's to put him as a slave. He's going to at least... In prison, and then what happened? By God's grace, what happened? He was forgiven. But the, the text of this thing comes alive when you understand how he went and didn't see it by God's grace. He's probably a free will guy. He didn't see God's grace working there. He didn't see God's grace. He didn't see God's providence working there. That, wow, this is another picture. Now, this course, I realize... This, that this is, could be a parable. This is like an, an issue that could happen. But listen, the problem is how we responded to this brought every divine, you know, providence and and work of God on him, on him. And the master saw what he was doing. And let me tell you something. What happened was it wasn't what he was tempted by. He saw this and he's like, now I should go out and forgive because I was forgiven so much. I should go and forgive. No, no, not him. Oh, no. No, no, I'm an independent agent. I can do what I want to do. And next thing I see the injustice. You owe me money. That was another issue. Don't worry about that. You can't connect the dots there. 
But the, remember, the responses is where God's working. How you respond is the real issue. How you respond to everything. I can go through this every page. I found one on almost every page in the scripture. How you respond to your circumstances, how you respond to your trials and tribulations, how do you respond to your hurt and pain is really the issue. The last one comes from Romans 12. And he says, bless those who persecute you. <coughs> bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. What's the, what's the challenge? You're persecuted. What's the response? Bless them. Rejoice when those rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, uh, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So what's the, what's the problem? Somebody's evil. They're, they're doing something evil to you. So what's the response? Be honorable, isn't it? Don't give thought to that. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. You see the responses and the facing the trials or the problems? It's the issue. The problem is not the problem. How we respond to it is the real problem. Is the real problem. Father, thank you for our time. We'll pick it up again next week, Lord, and help us with that. Just may this produce some fruit down the road, years later, maybe even on deathbeds, maybe when something tragic happens. Free your people with the peace of God by their obedience to the word of God. So help us in this journey. This is our, this is our hard part. This is the toxins of our, the soil of our own heart. And we pray for your work here. So as you respond to that, I'm freeing us is more important than you respond in disciplining us, we pray. We love you and praise you. Be with our pastor today in Jesus' name. Amen.